Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book, where a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres and give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and then, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. We are joined today by Mark Salter, the co-author with Senator John McCain of their latest book, The Restless Wave, Good Times, Just Causes, Great Fights, and Other Appreciations. Mark was McCain's chief of staff and active on McCain's presidential campaign. In their new book, we are given a front seat, intimate perspective on the most critical issues of our time. So I have a couple of different thoughts on this that I'll organize and then maybe we'll break it down. So let's start with this. You, at the beginning of this segment of the conversation, talked about the voters in in many ways being responsible. So one of the best articles that I've read over the last year about the political process was by John Dickerson in The Atlantic about the job of president. And he actually opens the article with a job description and and beginning to question whether this world, this country has become too complicated to give this presidential job to one person. But he also talks about that the framers of our Constitution, the founders, felt like allowing the election of the president to be based on a kind of populism would subject the choice of a president to too whimsical a base. So they put in protections. But yet we've come back to that. Well, yes and no. I I don't know. Um, I mean, the argument for why we still have an electoral college is otherwise California and New York pick pick every president. Um, Right. And so I get that and I understand that. Obviously, it didn't work in the way the founders had intended because – the person who won the popular vote was the more rational, sane candidate. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and the person that won the presidency through the Electoral College majority was not. Was not. Didn't really work the way as in, I think they probably would have intended. Um, I, I assume most founders would have been horrified by the prospect of a Donald Trump presidency <laughs> had it, yeah. um, had, it, uh, had uh, such an idea um, occurred to them. But um, I, I go back to something that, that I think is instinctive to McCain. And I don't mean this by as if he doesn't have an ego or other politicians don't have egos. They all do. When I say humility, I really mean that sort of recognitions of the frailties of human nature, mm-hmm. the equal inherent dignity that we all have. People in Washington seem to have bad character. I don't know. They aren't statesmen. I, I, you know, I think it's a lot of things. I think it's uh, – do you think the way you run for office has yeah, compounded yeah. the – and I mean, but it's just – I mean the people that – I'm sure it just seems where I'm, I'm – living in my own bubble here and I'm reacting to my own times and I'm mm-hmm. not being historical about it. But I have seen the change where even if – like the whole point of the stories McCain wanted to tell in this book about working with Ted Kennedy or Paul Wellstone or Russ Feingold or any of the – Chuck Schumer or any of the Democrats he's worked with over the years, you know, um, wasn't just a story of why can't we all get along, you know, why can't we be friends. It wasn't it, you know. It was just – it's just – a sense that we had a job to do. We understood what our job mm. does, and we had a fundamentally modest view. Uh, they had a fundamentally modest view of what yeah. that job was. Just, just let's do the best we can here, and say we've got a problem. So in the eighties, you know, you hear it all the time—the story of Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who was then the Democratic yeah. Speaker of the House. They didn't fundamentally reform or alter or restructure. Yeah, systemically, uh, Social Security. They just extended it for about twenty years, thirty years, whatever it lasted, so that it didn't go bankrupt and people and it got worked. and it worked. That's you know, it's we have these sort of crazy notions of what a country with so many different, with so many people and so many different opinions and mm. and so many different centers of power and you know, so many checks and restraints on our ability to go- govern. You know, can do. You know, yeah. So just let's just. Let's just fix. Let's fix immigration. It's not that hard. And that's 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 why McCain wanted to tell those stories. These people had ideas that, you know, right. John McCain, and I'll argue with anybody, was, was a pretty conservative Republican. Ted Kennedy was sort of the leading liberal of the United Democrat. States. Democrat. And yet, and, and yet. And yet they recognize we, ha- we, we may have different opinions about how to do that, but the, the problems this country has are problems we have in common. Right. So let's... So almost the classic thing about negotiation, 
what do we have in common right. that we should There you have. go. So, yeah. And responsibilities in common, even. Yeah. Right. But what is it that citizens and normal voters... Well, the candidate who says uh, Washington is a uh, hopeless den of iniquity and send me to Washington and I'll, I'll clean that swamp out and I'll, I, I won't work with any of those guys, don't vote for that guy. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's BSing you, you know. Uh, vote for the person yeah. that says. Vote for the person that sends, sends me to Washington. I want to solve some problems, and I'll work with anybody to get them done. Vote for that candidate. Right. Yeah, that's that's who I'd look for. And do you think, most importantly, would the senator think that there's enough elasticity in the system that we can come back to that, or are we on a path where we're going to have to wander in the desert? No, and and I don't want to th- think it's all... Uh, I want to get you back from the gloomy. Yeah, it's not. It, it, there, it, there, there are whole chunks of this government that are functioning as well as can be expected. Yeah. Um, Senator McCain's committee, he's chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and every year, not, and not only when he was chairman, but every year he has been chairman, and every year that he was the ranking Republicans when Democrats had the majority there... It reports out its authorizing bill for the entire all the Defense Department, all all the armed forces, usually unanimously, maybe with one or two dissenters, but more often than not, it's unanimously. The House does the same with their version of it. It passes on the floor by overwhelming majorities, with only a few backbench cranks usually opposing it, like Rand Paul or some somebody like that. And uh, they go to conference with the House. They agree on a conference report. Both houses pass the conference report. It goes down to the president. And he, he signs it. So some stuff is working. And it doesn't get any attention because it's not a, uh, it's not a spectacle. It's not bad news. It's, it's just Congress working the way it's supposed to work and the executive working the way it's supposed to work. And, and there's not a lot of partisanship fights over. There's a lot of parochial fights going on in there where people have bases in their district or they, weapon systems are built in their district or something. There's those kind of fights, but they're entirely nonpartisan. You know, you'll, you'll, yeah. you'll have members. Democrat and Republican members from the same district or state fighting for the same things. Um, but it always gets done. And there are other committees that do their work just like that right. every year. There's just one appropriations committee. There are multiple authorizing committees. Uh, an authorizer tells you what what you can spend and on what – and an appropriator spends it. Okay. <laughs> you know? um, they're yeah. supposed to follow what the authorizers tell. They seldom do, and they they and they don't have to. Well, you you can have, there are rules against it. And you go down and, and as a guy uh, having worked for an authorizer, he's on the floor all the time saying, "You're legislating on an appropriations bill. You're not allowed to do that." Right. You know, and we'll have those kind of fights. It's usually overridden in a vote. You know, we'll bring a point of order against it and be overridden. Appropriations committee is broken down into subcommittees. All committees are, but those subcommittees are almost like committees of their own. They manage to make sure they've got somebody from just about every state on that committee. And uh, uh, so they're 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 hard to beat. Used to be that they would all get their bills done, whether it was foreign aid bills or defense appropriations bills or whatever. Very rarely does that happen anymore. Now we pass these big omnibus continuing resolutions. They're called yeah because of the dysfunction in both houses of Congress. We can't get can't get those things through anymore. That's 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 just got to stop. But I do think your advice that is important for people who are listening or thinking about our Congress is don't send people who are not going to compromise because we need people who want to get things done. The way things have happened, which your stories about the senator's career in the legislature is totally about working with people like Chuck Schumer, Ted Kennedy, or others is because they want to get something done and understand that there's a common good that might require compromise. I think, you know, people always look at sort of the, the what's changed in the environment of Washington. Exactly. So they'll blame it on the spread and, and relative cheapness of air travel. I think McCain's argument is you don't have to be friends. It helps. He's got many friendships that mean yeah. a great deal to him. It helps. It certainly makes things easier. It makes it easier to get things done if you've got friends there. Uh, but it's, it's not necessary. It's not necessary. You just need to be a little bit more discerning about the character what did these people do before they ran for Congress? How do they strike you? Do they generally seem to be, you know, are they problem solvers? Does that matter to them? Is policy matter to them? Or is it just this sort of idealistic, tribal... Um, Silo. Yeah. And do, do they only affiliate with people who think like them? Have they ever done anything that's required them to work with right. people that disagree with them? You know, there are all sorts of ways to discern that, that person's character, that, that person's what I would call a governing temperament. 
I like that governing temperament. Yeah, That's the, a good the, term. You know, and mostly what you want to get is a sense of they they understand human nature. They're just not these. Um, yeah, hundred percent certain all the time of what they're doing, and who who they who they're with, and that they're better than the, those other guys. I mean, the, the whole thing of con, you know the contemporary social media conservatives now is owning the libs. You know, it's just it doesn't matter if you get anything done or something wrong done or anything else, as long as we show those libs who's boss. It's just, it's just, it's, it's junior high. There was an article about you in the uh, New Yorker the other day. Benjamin Wallace Wells wrote a piece in the New Yorker called John McCain and the End of Romantic Conservatism. This is a quote from you, Mr. Salter. In terms of pop culture sensibility, it's more Rat Pack, kind of a smart ass, a little bit of a wise guy, but quite sentimental, a romantic cynic. Well, what gives him um, his resilience, um, the two R's I always describe, you know, the two dominant features in his personality of McCain is his resilience and his restlessness. Yeah. Um, but what gives him his resilience is, I think, and what gives him his great empathy for others and why he is known in the remotest corners of the world by people who are oppressed, know who he is and know him to be a friend, um, is because when he was a prisoner of war, he experienced the very best mm. of human nature and the very worst of human nature in the exact same experience, the same moment. Yeah. That gives you a, a facility, almost a negative capability to know just how wretched and awful people can be and, right. yet, and yet think they're capable of good. As, as I think you know, we wrote it at one point, to hold on to hope when hope is for suckers. Mm. And that gives him, uh, I think, a really interesting, rich sensibility, heroic to hold on hope when hope is for suckers. Mm. And he's got that ability and he always has. So he knows, We I talk about in that article, but we also talk in the book, Belarusia. Belarusia has been run by an autocrat for decades now. And, and there's always a, a fairly lively uh, dissident movement in Belarusia. And they're always fighting for democratic reforms. McCain always you know, gives them whatever support he can, folk verbally, if nothing else. And, uh, and would like to go to Belarus to meet with him, but they'll, they never let him into the country, the government. So he always meets him in Latvia or, or, or Lithuania or somewhere in the Baltics, and and uh, and it's the same guys over and over again. And you know, and they, you know, it's, it's years now, and they haven't, you know, they haven't really uh, cracked the regime's resolve, and yet they'll get him next year. Yeah, yeah. McCain admires that more than anything else. Yeah. You know, and that's uh, and it's so it it, it got him through. A dark time, you know. So he's got that ability to know just how awful human beings can be, and it's a special kind of empathy that that that, that sort of inculcates in you and uh, yeah encourages so, in you. So talking about resiliency, a lot of the early first press of the book uh, focused on the presidential campaign that. Um, Senator McCain ran for president. You were on that uh, campaign. So everybody wanted to talk about the VP choice. I want to talk about it in general, but just to make everybody happy, we're going to talk about the VP choice. So in the book, you talk about uh, that your choice was uh, Tim Pawlenty and McCain's first choice would have been a Bloomberg or a Joe Lieberman but he was dissuaded from that because of the inability to get through through the convention. So do you think that's a problem that who a candidate thinks would be the best vice president is nonetheless, his hands are tied because of the convention? I mean, what's your whole view of how that process worked yeah, I think firsthand? At, at, at the end of the day, I mean, who knows? But at the end of the day, um, probably not, unless our vice presidential choice somehow could have kept Lehman Brothers afloat. Um, I, I, you know, I don't. You think that was the bigger? Yes, when the, when the global credit system collapsed, and with you know, with it, I think any realistic hope for for uh, a Republican to win the presidency uh, went with it. Uh, plenty wasn't my choice at the beginning, or in the middle, or any other. Well, yeah. I didn't really have a choice or a, a, a favorite. A favorite. It, um, the senator wanted very much. He had determined that it was – and we had done all the stuff you're supposed to do, polling, all, you know, all the polling on it and everything else on a host of names. And uh, 
And he wanted to, he, he, it was a change election. Um, the wrong track, right track, wrong tech number was definitely, you know, 70 some percent wrong track. Uh, pres- yeah. President Bush, because of Iraq and Katrina, uh, his, his, his approval numbers were, te- were terrible at that point point um it was a change election obviously we're the republican and uh and obama is the democrat so he's got the advantage on change right there and he embodied change in every way so how can we get mccain who had been an you know sort of a mavericky you know reformer a change agent all most of his career how can we get that back we tried by telling the mccain story you know we, yeah. we campaigned around i did this i did that I, you know he was a campaign finance reform author and all that kind of stuff and uh i, I and and our slogan embodied that country first country before party mm. country before everything else um but we weren't getting anywhere no matter what we did we just weren't uh, we were a story in 2000. We weren't the big story in 2008. Right. It was the first African-American major party nominee for president was the, was the big story. The very eloquent Senator Obama who came out of seemingly nowhere all of a sudden and, and, yeah. and hit with all this hope and enthusiasm and young people and all sorts were excited. And it was just – when I say the media had the thumb on the scale for Obama, it was mostly they were just uh, – we treated the media better than the Obama campaign treated them. But but it was mostly because it was just a, a – It was a more compelling a more, new story. story. Yeah, it was a new story, compelling, rich, exciting, all those things. What can we do? McCain was very close to Joe Lieberman, who had been the Democratic Party's vice presidential nominee in 2000. They worked on a lot of things together. They've traveled the world together. They're very, very dear, close friends and respect each other's very much. He decided, well, here's one thing I can do. I can put my friend Joe Lieberman on the right. And I, I would have a Democrat or an independent who caucused with the Democrats be my vice presidential nominee. That will not only get attention, but I'll have someone I trust completely. They have differences on a host of social and, and domestic policy issues. There would have to have been some sort of, you know, commitment by Senator Lieberman that, you know, in, in, in the event that Senator McCain was unable to govern or discharge the duties of his office, I would follow his policies on everything too. We were, you know, prepared to come up with something like that, but uh, word began to leak that that's where we were heading and, and um, we heard from party leaders, state and national leaders around the clock. Yeah, the convention would erupt, and uh, but do you think that be, was unfortunate, Mark? Yeah, I do. do you think I do. A- I do because I like Senator Lieberman. I I like the idea of doing it, um, but it, unfortunately, it leaked, and the only way we we're going to get that out of there without you know a risk, we probably would have won the fight on the floor, but we would have limped out of their damage. And if we we're going to do it at all, we were going to have to do it as a big shocking surprise at the last moment. But uh, it, 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 Well, you did have a big shocking surprise at the last moment. We did. But anyway, it became clear to us that it would be a bloodbath. And you got a couple of months left in the election when you come out of the convention. Yeah. You don't want to spend a month binding up your wounds you know, within your own party and, and demoralizing big chunks of your own base. Um, so you don't subscribe to the notion, which lots of people do, that if he had picked someone other than Sarah Palin, who he doesn't say a bad word about, but and I think it's important to make that clear. But you don't subscribe to the notion that she was the one no. who... And no. there's nothing... No. And the polls wouldn't yeah, have suggested that. you can't, you can't find a poll that would suggest she, she, she did. She got a lot of people that weren't wildly enthusiastic about... A lot of conservatives who weren't wildly enthusiastic about John McCain, enthusiastic about her. And uh, and they voted. We may have lost a few suburban votes over her. But for a while, not even that. I mean, I'll she's game... Uh, she has natural retail political skills that you're born with. You can't teach. Make them. And, uh, and she's pretty good. I've never seen anybody, maybe this side of Bill Clinton, work a rope line like she works a rope line. She's pretty, right. pretty impressive. And, uh, but she didn't seem ready and for she prime could, no, time. She, she stumbled in interviews and, and things started to get tricky. But there's a myth that's grown up that she went out there and waged some sort of alternative campaign to McCain. She didn't. Yeah. You know, she, she largely stayed on the scripts we gave her and, you know, um, and worked really hard doing it and there was no reason for him to be angry with her and he isn't and he's always defended her he made that choice not because she was more conservative than he was you know or a populist but she does seem like she did at least seem like the seeds of populism yes she did but who she was when he decided to put her on there was yeah there was some of that and there's nothing wrong with populism that's based still in ideals and not blood and soil. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, Teddy, te- in many ways, Teddy Roosevelt Teddy was a populist, Roosevelt was you know, a and McCain's a big Roosevelt admirer. Um, you know, she had taken on 
the incumbent sort of the Republican establishment. She'd taken on the oil companies successfully. Yeah. You know, um, so she had the hallmarks so it, we, of a reformer. Right. Uh, she, of a maverick. Right. She was a reformer. And that's how he, he sort of saw it. And that's why, you know, she he he, was he, persuaded. He, he was persuaded. At that time, I decided she she didn't have enough experience. Was my point of view, and it Palenti did, and I liked Palenti, and I you know they they agreed. He and the senator agreed on most issues, and I thought Palenti had been a good governor. And that's the choice had come down to Palenti or Palin. I see. I made the argument for you. Palenti. Just only wanted people with peas. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> we we came down to the peas, and uh, um, I, I was a plenty uh, advocate, and and somebody else, uh, St- Steve Schmidt, was was the Palin. Uh, Steve ad- Schmidt, who's now left the Republican Party. Yeah, I don't know if that's a permanent departure, but he's left for this, and for perfectly good reasons. Um, so we argued, uh, you know, not argued, we just sort of said, here are the pros and cons, and, I, and my argument was, you will, you'll lose the country first argument, this will be seen as more political, and you'll lose the experience advantage you have over Obama. Now, I don't think the experience advantage for John McCain was going to win him that election. It was a change election. Yeah. It, it, in many ways, it was an experience, not on foreign policy and other things. I think there were well-founded doubts about Obama and the electorate, and re- remember, the race was close. We came out of St. Paul, where we had our convention, yeah, a few points ahead. ahead, and we stayed tied or a point up or a point down up until the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Really, I think at that time, in most polls, Obama might have had a one or two point lead, but it was it was a competitive election, and we were holding our own. Um, and you know, one of the things, Mark, that I think was really inspiring to watch uh, the senator do during the campaign. You know, it's a little bit of threading a needle to run against the first African-American and yet compete and not smack of any kind of racism. And the senator, uh, you know, in a couple of memorable instances, but certainly as a theme, remained remarkably inspiring about the possibility of electing an African-American, yet competing with him. Yeah, And that must have been... <clears throat> Hard to navigate in doing the campaign. It, it wasn't as hard, not just the senator, but most of us didn't want anything to do with. I remember when Obama became the de facto nominee for the Democrats. There was a story in Newsweek, and I, I remember I sent an angry diatribe to John Meacham, who was the editor at the time, um, but a good guy and a friend. And um, where it just sort of said, now the Republicans, how bad is the racism, you know, the, the, the Southern strategy, whatever you call it, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. just, it just, it, the premise was, well, now you're going to get ra- racial attacks on Obama and we'll see how Obama can handle it. I'm sitting there reading it, Schmidt, Rick Davis, Senator reading this thing. Well, it's effectively calling us all a bunch of racists and we, yeah. we want nothing to do with it. We never ran an ad, although there were people who advocated we I do bet. It, about uh, the, his Obama's controversial pastor, Reverend Wright, you know, who's, who, his relationship with him was sort of the reason he gave his big speech on race uh, during the primaries. We never ran any ad. There were arguments about it in the campaign, you know, because all the polling showed that was we could drive some negatives with it. Right. And he didn't go. McCain there. refused it. Refused to do it. People, you know, who said crazy conspiracy theory type stuff. He's a you know a, a Muslim plant he or was whatever. Pretty, you know, pretty plain spoken. Yeah, on he, that. He, he would he would stop him from saying that. I mean, the, what people don't appreciate, I don't think, is when you're uh, when you're giving these big rally speeches or town halls or something. You don't hear, especially at rallies, you don't hear what people. 20, 50 yards back or yelling, you know, if they're yelling terrorists. I mean, yeah. you, know, you, get, you don't hear that. We would tell them, you know, that we, I think we had an event in Albuquerque and that we heard it ourselves. You know, we were like, oh, there's some guys back there that were really, you know, if you hear something like that, you know, he goes, yeah, I'll, I'll take care of it. I remember there was a guy, I forget where we were, but some local conservative talk, radio talk guy warmed up the crowd before McCain had even gotten there and he kept emphasizing Obama's middle name. You know, and uh, and McCain walked out and said, "Hey, I, we want nothing no. to do with that." You know, yeah. Um, so yeah, he, he, because he's a good, he's a good, he's a good, honorable, decent human being. If I could leave anybody with any notion, and certainly in in this particular moment in our political history, character matters more than anything else. Anything else, your views, policy views, your experiences, anything else, your character, character first. Everything yeah. is filtered Every- through that. So, Mark, what was the hardest part for the senator and for you in that White House run? I mean, you and I talked a lot while that was going on, and it felt, 
I mean, for one, I think most people don't understand just how damn exhausting. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, indolence is sort of my natural. <laughs> I can attest to that. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, you know, uh, just the insane amount of stress and work involved is taxing. Um, so oh, I can't remember the exact date of Lehman Brothers late. And then, and then the sort of mount escalating 800 you know, 800 point sell offs on the market every day. And, and we had economists on the plane, uh, uh, serious, you know, uh, respected economists who are saying, you know, we're days away from people going to ATMs and not being able to get money out. Um, right. There's an insane amount of preparation for these debates, which are exhausting. Yeah. And, and all that's going, and in, and in the last week or two of, of a campaign, and in the last uh, week, 10 days, you're flying to like seven, six, seven, eight airports a day. a day doing rallies you know tarmac or air, airport hangar rallies giving the same stump speech at a high volume till your voice is shredded and and to do all that so you've got a period so i would say by sometime in early october we realized we realized the odds of success for us were rapidly vanishing and um you got to go out there and fight like hell every minute and he did, and you don't really, you don't get down. It's not depressing or anything like that. I don't want you to think. You just, you, let's just, you know, you punch in every day, and, and you know. But in the back of your mind, it's like, oh, okay, we're down in eleven days, ten days, nine days. So really, on election night, when you think you're, we might have been devastated. He wasn't. Do you think he's sorry he ran? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No, I, I think it was mostly a, a wonderful experience for him and, and a great, mm-hmm. great honor. Right. Um, but it, uh, you know, I remember it was, uh, I, and we tell the story in the book. Um, so the we he had sort of two Secret Service crews that rotate every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You have shifts within those crews that cover the whole day and nights, but there are two overall crews that cover you with two leaders of those crews and. Uh, and the guy that, uh, whose crew it was this time was a great Secret Service agent named Mark Hughes. And, um, you know, we're sitting in this sort of condo-type room at the uh, resort hotel, the Biltmore in Phoenix, where, where we were going to do the election night speech. Mm-hmm. And we were headquartered for the night. So, you know, uh, we're about to go out and give the concession speech. And uh, and before he goes out, as soon as California closed, he wanted to go out and it. Get let's just get out there, get it done. I want to go home. You know, no one angry or anything like that. It just just okay. You know, I gave it my best shot. You know, and uh, Mark Hughes sits down and says, "Well, let me walk you through. You know, the next couple of weeks of you know your 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 protection yeah. here because uh, you, you know even defeated candidates hang on to their secret service protection for a couple yeah. couple of weeks. And the next day, McCain planned to go to his place in northern Arizona that he loves more than any other place on earth, and wanted to get up there with a few friends and family and barbecue and. Have hang. A, yeah, hang out. And um, and so Mark started and he just put a hand on his knee and said, Mark, you've done a great job. I really appreciate yeah. everything you guys have done for me. You and Billy, who was the other crew leader, are great. I loved getting to know you and everything else. But after tonight, you and I are probably never going to see each other again. And uh, he, you know, and Mark being the kind of guy he was, yes, sir. And uh, they gave him a ride home that night. And the next morning, John and Cindy McCain were spotted walking down Camelback Avenue in Phoenix to the to the from their condo from their condo to the to the local Starbucks to get their on morning their coffee on their own. And he drove himself up to his place up north that right, yeah. right after they got their coffee. And he and as he told me, I couldn't have been happier. Yeah. So he really wasn't didn't feel dejected or or sour or anything else. He was it, it was just a, a lot of work, great honor. He fought as hard as he could. We made mistakes, did a lot of things right too. Did everything he could not to let people down and and uh um, yeah. and run for president without compromising his principles and um and really went on to fight the good fight. I yeah, mean, oh, he's had a very, uh, you know, he's he's run for president twice, and both times he's come back with an enhanced stature, obviously, and it, which 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 allowed him to be able to do more as a United States senator, which he appreciates. So, Mark, I want to cover uh, one more foreign policy mm-hmm. kind of thing before I come back to your relationship with the senator and the writing of the book and and the title and all of that. You've got a chapter entitled Nyet. So one of McCain's biggest disagreements with President Trump is over his view of Russia. So I have a couple of questions around this. One is, how does the senator imagine that uh, Trump 
could look at Putin differently. And then I want to talk a little bit about the interference in the election by the Russians and who knew what when Mm -hmm. and Chris Steele's Mm -hmm. role Mm -hmm. and Chris Steele's connection Mm -hmm. to uh, the senator. Yeah. Okay. Uh, First about Putin, very early on before Putin was was Russia's president, you know, he, he knew about Putin and had grave reservations about them. And even if you go back to, I think, a debate in 1999, maybe, certainly early 2000, when he was running for, you know, for the Republican yeah. nomination against George Bush, he, uh, he, he, he made a remark in a debate about Putin, you know, be wary of this guy. And then, <laughs> and then when Bush made that remark, you know, I looked into his eyes and saw a guy sense of the man's soul or, McCain made some wise-ass remark as he's prone, prone to, to do. do. <laughs> he said, I looked in his eyes and saw three letters, KGB. <laughs> and uh, right. and I was, McCain looks at him as who he is, a thief who's bankrupting his country, uh, running a, a... I mean, how tiny is their economy? It's, it's you know, a tenth of ours or something, you know, yeah. or less. Um, you're running a criminal enterprise, murdering people two to a penny, uh, murdering... All over. Yeah, murdering on the... Murdering, brazenly. Brazenly mur- using chemical weapons on, the, on killing journalists and deliberately bombing hospitals in Syria. So McCain, as he calls him in this book, Vladimir Putin's an evil man, intent on evil deeds. Mm. Uh, and that's how he would like the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, the leader of the greatest political military alliance in human history, a country based on values, not land and and tribe, um, to stand up and say so and not abase himself abjectly, as I think the senator put it the other day in Helsinki to to one of the world's worst dictators. There's an incident we recount in the book where Putin returns the dislike, I guess. Um, McCain goes to sort of used to be a NATO conference. Now it's a open to everybody in Munich every year, every February. And Putin, which you've been to yeah, many which times. Many, many, many times. But I just go for the beer and sausage and <laughs> other people go for more. There's character. Yeah, and uh, Putin came to it once and he gave this, everybody expect Putin to be diplomatic and, you know, reach out and why can't we be better friends? This would have been, I think, 2007. So it's Bush mm-hmm. era. And uh, instead he's, he, he gave this damning Blast at the West, you know, and the whole time glared at McCain the entire time he's given the speech, <laughs> you know. But McCain uh, is a surprising guy, so typically he's pugnacious and he's got this line: "A fight not joined is a fight not enjoyed." Um, and he's always given, you know, these these uh, you know colorful arguments at, at these at this co- particular conference almost every year. And um, but in this instance, he gave a speech where he's just sort of more in sorrow than anger to find out that our that our enemy is nothing but a commonplace bully. You know, and, and said that and, in know, a words speech. To, words to that effect in his speech and that you know. speech you wrote. Nope, nope. The speech that had been prepared for the conference, which I didn't write either, he chucked it aside and, and gave uh, this speech and uh, gave a speech where it was just sort of ah, oh, what a disappointment. <laughs> So, so Mark, Senator McCain couldn't really come up with a theory of why Trump somehow sees Putin differently. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm yeah. surmising yeah. from what you're saying. Yeah. No, no. I, if, unless you're thinking that he, he, Senator McCain suspects he's been compromised by the Russians or something like that. He doesn't know that to be a fact. Yeah. He, he did come into possession of the dossier, Yeah, which oh. in the fe- fever swamps of the alt-right and, right, and, and not even the alt-right, the fever swamps of the right, that's become, my God, did you know McCain? McCain got the, yes, we know McCain got the dossier because he told everybody. He got the he, dossier. Yeah, this wasn't <laughs> secret. <laughs> yeah. He got the dossier and he did what any responsible public servant should do with something like that. He walked it over to the nearest law enforcement agency that could, in, in, yeah. the, in a position to investigate it. In this instance, that would be the FBI. Uh, he was at a conference, another conference. Uh, in, in Europe, right? No, no, in uh, Halifax. Oh. In Nova Scotia uh, that he goes to every November, I think it was. And uh, a, f- a former British ambassador approached him and said, um, there's this guy who's a career M- MI5 a- a- agent. Yeah. And uh, he was hired to do uh, research on on Trump. And he's discovered some alarming things. And there's a report. And uh, I've, uh, I have I can vouch for this guy. And 
There's you, a worry. You, you, you ought to take a look at it. So McCain dispatched an aide to London to meet with Chris Steele, who was, as advertised, a perfectly responsible, rational, decent, not a, didn't come into it being a Trump hater. He's not a conspiracy theorist or anything else. He's a very experienced, solid, professional intelligence agent. But the tainting of him yes. was because he had been hired. That's right. It's all politics. Yeah. Don't, don't believe any of it. You know, this guy, this guy was a solid citizen. He, he was an right. ally. He thought, you know, there are questions that need to be investigated about the, the man, the, the United States is but just Senator elected Senator McCain's president. view would be that Chris Steele contacted others out of a sense of character, uh, yes, not out right. of a political... Being a good ally. Yeah. You know, uh, being, a, being a good ally. And so he, uh, Abe came back, said, I think the guy's on the level. Uh, arrangements were made. And the dossier, and I just did air quotes for, 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 for your listeners. listeners. <laughs> and, uh, we're audio. And uh, it came into the senator's possession. He read it. He put it in his office safe. He called office of the FBI director, James Comey, said, I'd like to come over and see you. A day or two later, he went over to see Comey, handed Comey the dossier, explained how it came into possession, and said, I have no ability to ascertain whether any of this is true, accurate or not. You do. Here it is. Here it is. They already had a copy, and Comey let him know that, yeah, we've got it. And <clears> what, okay. what time frame was this, Mark? November, this was November the... December, time frame of 2016. Yeah. yeah. After the election. Right. Comey already had they the worked, dossier. Because the FBI had, had been working with, with... In the summer, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it was, he wasn't the first person. And if he wa- was, great. You know, as he says, you know, what would you have said of me if I read if something like that? If you hadn't done anything with it. And yes, and just put it in my safe to, and left it there. You know, I, one, I, I would have been ashamed of myself. I certainly would have been no patriot. Right. And uh, uh, he did his, his, his patriotic duty and uh, discharged the duty of... Of a United States senator, and um, he he'll apologize to no one for it. And all the conspiracy theory and nonsense that goes on about it is just politics. Trump Trump apologists defending you know the the indefensible. Yeah, would you or the senator make up when you think Mueller will? end up wrapping up his investigation? I have no idea. You have no more insight no, than no, the rest I'm of just, us. I'm just a news consumer like everybody else. Yeah. They, he doesn't talk, Mr. Mueller. Yeah, that's for sure, right? Yeah. So, Mark, on a totally different note, I've got a couple of things that are more tied to to you. How do you, how do you navigate your voice with the senators? You've written how many books with him? Seven. Seven. So, have your brains melded in some way? Do you? Do you? No. I mean, it's um, there's no trick to it. Uh, it's just I've known him for thirty years. Right. I've been writing speeches for him for thirty years, writing op eds for him, writing books for him. Uh, until he got sick, I talked to him. He, you know, I, I worked on his Senate staff for nineteen years and worked in his both presidential campaigns and have uh, uh, been on retainer to his campaign committee and pack for every year since we've, we've become good friends over the years. And even when I wasn't on a staff anymore, we talked at least once a week, usually several times a week. I always laugh. How, how do you get his voice in your head? I said, I'm having trouble getting, getting it out, out of, out my, of my head. head. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, I just, I know how he, I know how he thinks and how he likes to express himself. And the mm-hmm. job of a good speechwriter isn't to reinvent the person you're writing speeches for. It is to, to make him be who he is at his best, mm. you know, and uh, to help him be who he wants to express himself at his best. The things, yeah. his thoughts is we see the world in very similar ways. We have disagreements about some things, no, no, no doubt, but but mostly we, we share the same worldview and the same sense of what matters in life, what's important in life. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I, th- I, I think, I hope, I hope we both have a sense of honor that's, that's fairly healthy. And, um, and uh, he's been very good to me. Uh, he's been mm. extremely good to me. He's been very good to my wife and kids. You know, he's just been a, yeah. a decent human being, a really fun guy to work yeah. for, an exuberant, enthusiastic, fun-loving, fascinated. You know, he just he throws himself into life in a way that's just it's exciting to when you work for him. He's yeah. in, he's involved on a dozen different issues at any given moment, and they all interest him equally and and he likes to fight for the little guy so you get uh, this romantic conservatism that the new yorker write about is really a sense of like i'm out there to fight for other people to like make sacrifices for other people to do great things for other people how do you think he's changed you mark what do you think you've learned from you it's 30 years that's you know you're 60 something years old 60 63 63 yeah so 
almost half your life. Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, I was going to say he made, made, he's made me more pugnacious. I don't think that's oh, true. Oh, God, I don't think I so. I don't think that's true. But he probably made me a little a little bit braver. You can't help but become a little bit. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I've seen him do things that are just like, wow, man, that took cuts. And uh, and uh, and he usually comes out okay after he's done it. So, it, so you've seen that. I've seen that, and I, I don't fear for my, you know, I don't fear the consequences of, of, of actions as I might have once. Um Maybe that um, he's. Um, I've never met anybody as resilient as him. So I don't. I don't think. He, I don't think he's able to impart that to other people. That's something. Yeah. I, he maybe gets it from his mom or. But maybe you're wired. You wired that way. You think. Yeah, he's just. Um, he's just an insanely resilient person who just. You just cannot keep him down, and it's why people. You know, the first reaction to. People hearing the news about his cancer diagnosis was, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tough cancer that he's got. Not, not one with a lot of um, survivors. And but, you know, but, the but thing- everybody realistic. I made a joke at the time. I said, I, I, I've already written the eulogy. McCain will give it my funeral. It's very nice, you know, and and I expect him to be able to deliver it. And uh, that's why everybody. The first thought was, well, if anybody can beat this, he will. You know, yeah. that may or may not be true, but. Uh, I just, I mean, you know, as he puts it, uh, you know, he's crashed several airplanes. He's been a prisoner of war. He's been on the verge of death. He's, you know, he's yeah. seen his political career crater a couple of times and just gets up every morning. And, you know, he never looks in the rearview mirror, really. He does with nostalgia, you know, and, and he can be very sentimental at times, you know. And But he looks back just generally. And as he always, always says, I'm the luckiest guy you'll ever meet. And, you know, Mark, the other thing that I I think it's always been notable to me, I mean, we've been friends for, you know, 15, 20 years and have had extensive conversations about lots of things, you know, when you were working on the campaign. There's never been a moment where I've heard you lose faith in him. And that's when you think about long relationships and you guys have been in ugly places and trenches. Oh, yeah. and Not we, literal trenches, oh, and we, but, but yeah, we've I've had shouting matches with them. You know, I mean, it's only it's human nature. You know, and, right? Uh, um, but I've never see, I've never heard you express a loss. He's never of given faith me a reason. He's him. never given me any reason to. Yeah, I mean, he's never. And that says a lot about him. Yeah, of course. Mark, where'd the title of the book come from? Uh, the Navy hymn. So, we, as I told you, the book was originally the sort of wise ass remark he's got that. Remember, it's always it's always uh, it's, it's always darkest before it's totally black. And uh, um, after his diagnosis, he didn't want to be that flip. And uh, and he said, "Let's think think of something, and let's 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 have a sort of a navy related to the navy somehow." So um, you know, I, we just looked at the navy hymn, and there's a line in it. You, you want know, to read it? Uh, Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm has bound the restless wave. And he uh, we looked at, it and he said, "That's it, restless wave." One, he's a restless guy. You know, it's part of his resilience really that he's just he doesn't like to stay in the same situation and moves on good and bad i remember when we passed mccain fine gold it's like the next day he didn't okay that's done, it you know and uh we, we just liked it and then i, I think uh, uh john carr probably came up with the subtitle but our publisher but uh, so mark uh, you know sadly um the senator is battling what will likely do what this disease does to everybody and end their life Mm -hmm. uh, prematurely. Mm -hmm. What do you think the senator would hope his legacy will be? He he was asked that question directly, uh, I think, by Jake Tapper on the CNN interview. And he said uh, uh, he'd like his epitaph to be, he served his country. And then he paused for a moment and said, I hope some might consider it honorably. Hmm. You must spend some time thinking about what this will all be like for you. I mean, this has been half your life. Yeah. Um, you sure. I mean, but the way you would think if, you know, any other good, dear friend who was seriously sick um, yeah. or some a family person close to you, you just think about, wow, I'm going to miss that person. You know, no, no differently than I would think about uh, yeah. you know, any other good friend. And you've seen him a lot. Yep. I've seen him a lot. I'm about to go out and join others and going out to his place in Arizona and spend his birthday with him in a few days. And uh, Yeah. Well, it, you know, there's a couple of things I'd like to thank you for. One is I think this 
what I found, and I read the book twice. I read it in manuscript, and then I read it again to uh, to prepare us for a conversation. I liked it even more uh, the second time. But one of the things that I find the book does is it reacclimates you to the wider view of what we can think about our politicians can do and about history. I finished the book and felt inspired that we might have the elasticity to come back to the kind of ideals that I think the senator has stood for. Um, And this might be a dark period during that time. But it's a reminder, you know, a little bit John Meacham's book, which also is Mm -hmm. reflective, Mm -hmm. his new book, um, Soul of America, is reflective on the fact that maybe these are elastic qualities that we can come back to. We've been through worse. Yeah. And, and, And would the senator, do you think, with all his disagreements with the president, nonetheless believe that we as a country have that? Oh, of course. More than almost anyone else I know, he would. It's, he's held on to hope in much more dire circumstances than this, and is, and has seen people hold on to hope in countries you know, that are uh, uh, much in much worse straits than we're in, and uh, he'd, he'd have no doubt. Tomorrow's always a new day, you know. I mean, he would. Yeah. He would. He would subscribe to that. So there's a couple things. Um, One is I would uh, close with two thoughts. One is I've heard the senator say this hundreds of times as I've had the pleasure of listening to him speak where he thanks servicemen for their service Mm -hmm. that I hope you will extend on my part and our listeners' part thanking him for his service for these six decades of service. And we're going to do what is only right, and that is we'll close out the podcast by hearing from the senator. So thank you, Mark Salter, for appearing on Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. Hidden Valley. I was rootless for more than half of my 81 years, beginning with my itinerant childhood. My father's Navy career required us to move constantly, just as my grandfather's service had disrupted his childhood. My father was born in Council Bluffs, Iowa, not because his family resided there or had some connection to the town, but because his parents were moving to the West Coast at the time, and he arrived on the way. I lost track of how many places we lived, how many schools I had attended. The actual moving, of course, was undertaken by my capable, adventurous mother, hauling three kids across country, detouring here and there to visit some natural wonder or cultural attraction. Eventually, my parents sent me to boarding school, Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, so that I could receive my secondary education and have the same circle of friends in one location for longer than a year. We didn't see my father for long stretches during his deployments. He was gone almost all of World War II and at sea for much of the Korean War, serving as an executive officer on a cruiser. We spent time together when he had shore duty. Even then, he was at work most of the time, including weekends and holidays. In the summers, when he was stateside, he would take us to the McCain family estate in the Mississippi Delta, a cotton plantation purchased in 1851 by my great-great-grandfather, William Alexander McCain, and named for the local area, Teoc. My great-uncle Joe, my grandfather's younger brother, ran Teoc back then. It was a big place, a couple of thousand acres, with a comfortable but modest home that had replaced a more impressive manor house lost to a fire generations before, a company store with a gasoline pump, a cotton gin, and tenant farmers descended from the slaves who had been held in bondage by my ancestors and taken the name McCain. I hunted, fished, and rode horses there, and enjoyed time with my father and my teasing, funny Uncle Joe. Those are cherished memories, but my connection to the place was fleeting, and many summers and years of my childhood were spent entirely without my father. We learned to live with and respect his absences. My own Navy career meant more of the same, frequent moves and extended absences from my family and country. I didn't mind the life, really, at least not when I was single and could find fun and adventure in any temporary residence. But I knew how difficult my professional transience would be on my first wife, Carol, 
and our children. Until I remarried, left the Navy, and moved to Cindy's home, Arizona. The only time I lived in the same place longer than a year was an unexpectedly lengthy stay in a foreign country that wouldn't let me leave and preferred I'd never come. Among the few advantages of my five and a half years in Hanoi was that Carol and the kids could live in one place, Orange Park, Florida, the entire time I was gone. I think the experience of my wandering youth is one of the reasons I've always been restless. My curiosity and eagerness for new sights and experiences I likely got from my indefatigable mother. I didn't regret not having a hometown. Before I moved to Arizona, whenever I was asked where I was from, I just answered, all around, or the States. And I felt not the least bit sorry that I couldn't be more specific. But something changed in the years after I left the Navy— I began to appreciate the comfort and solace that could be found in belonging to a place smaller and more intimate than an entire country. Cindy and I decided we would raise our family in Arizona, and I would commute to Washington. Given Congress's short work week, that usually meant I could leave Washington on Thursday night or Friday morning and return Monday afternoon, and regular recesses would allow me to spend weeks at home. Of course, there were weekends and recess periods when I couldn't be in Arizona, when Congress had to work into the weekend, or when I campaigned for Republican candidates in other states. My travel abroad as a member of the Armed Services Committee consumed many recess periods as well. But still, I've been able to spend more time with my family in the same home than I had ever thought would be possible. In my first year in Congress, I had a meeting with members of the Arizona Farm Bureau. After an hour spent discussing issues theretofore unfamiliar to me, I mentioned a matter Cindy and I had recently started discussing. We were living in a small house in Mesa we had recently acquired so I would meet my district's residency requirements. We didn't have any children yet, but we were planning to and contemplating finding a place in the northern part of the state where our family could spend time together on weekends and holidays. Say, if any of you know of a place that's for sale up north that's on water, I added as we were exchanging goodbyes, let me know. My wife and I might be interested in it. As everyone knows, water is scarce in Arizona, and finding property for a reasonable price that's near any isn't an easy assignment. But some months later, I received a call from the head of the Farm Bureau. He had heard of a place for sale near Cottonwood. It's on Oak Creek, he informed me you might want to take a look at it. I called Cindy and she drove the 120 miles from Mesa to the spot in Yavapai County near Cornville, Arizona, where a winding, bumpy dirt road takes you down a steep hill to an oasis. Mormon pioneers were settled in the Salt Lake Valley in 1847, not long after the U.S. claimed the Utah Territory after the war with Mexico. Brigham Young was declared president of the Mormon Church and in that capacity, he dispatched missionaries to other parts of the Southwest, newly acquired from our defeated foe. Mormons founded communities in all parts of Arizona, including quite a few small towns in high, beautiful, desolate country in the northern part of the state. Towns like Eager, St. John's, and Snowflake. Many hardy souls stake claims in even more isolated locations if there were reliable water sources, including land along a horseshoe bend of Oak Creek. Oak Creek is a verde river tributary that carves a spectacularly beautiful gorge, Oak Creek Canyon, from Flagstaff down to Sedona, and continues on past Cornville to its confluence with the Verde south of Cottonwood. It is one of the few streams in the high desert of northern Arizona that runs all year. The creek bend that makes our valley verdant and fertile, and the stagecoach from Flagstaff to Prescott that passed nearby attracted the first settlers a Hidden Valley in the 1870s. The previous residents, Yavapai and Apache's peoples, had been forcibly relocated after a cruel march to the San Carlos Reservation in eastern Arizona. It was a hard life for those early settlers and a lonely one, I imagine. The valley is surrounded by steep hills, canyon walls, really. Getting in and out of there wouldn't have been easy. It still isn't. It was a life of ceaseless toil and hardship. The place is pretty far north and at a high elevation, so it frequently suffers late freezes, a regularly recurring catastrophe for crops and the families and livestock that depended on them. 
Families worked this valley until the 1950s when they began breaking up property and selling off parcels. One last ranching couple remained, a World War II veteran from Kansas, and his wife until they died, he in his late 60s and she in the early 70s. When Cindy saw our property with its single, small, three-bedroom cabin, it was lovely and green. But most of the rest of the valley had been neglected, leaving it uncultivated, dusty, and rocky. The settlers had dug an irrigation system across the entire valley that remained in operation, having been grandfathered in to recently passed laws that forbid the diversion of scarce water resources. There were trees here then, and we would plant many more. Many cottonwoods grace the property. They're fast growers, and we have fruit orchards, apple, peach, plum, and cherry trees. The cottonwoods whisper in the wind, and the fruit trees in blossom are a mesmerizing sight. But it's the slow-growing sycamores, so resilient in harsh climates, that give the place its majesty. They are just magnificent. The courtyard of the old palace in Istanbul the sultan's residence from the 15th century to the 19th, is lined by immense sycamores, some of which are believed to be 500 years old. They are as splendid as the palace they guard. We have a sycamore standing near the north bend of the creek that's close to 200 years old. With its massive trunk, great height, and sprawling limbs, it commands your attention, and the birds love it. Cindy said she knew instantly we would love the place. She made an offer for it that day. That was in 1983. The property was about a quarter of the size that it is today. We only had the one little cabin then. We soon built a guest cottage across an irrigation ditch from our house. In the 1990s, we bought the adjacent property to house our kids as they got older, and we added a deck to it, where I used to grill our meals. Our friends, the Harpers, have a home next to us. Not long after, we bought two small places near the south bend of the creek as guest houses. We built a new main house in 2010 to replace the original cabin, and we just finished building a new place for our kids, who are starting families of their own now. But the improvements we made that matter most to me are not architectural, but natural. We planted more cottonwoods and fruit trees, mimosas and mulberry bushes for the birds, flowers of all kinds, with rose vines clinging to the fences. We established rolling lawns of rich green grass, shaded by tree canopies and shimmering in the light filtered through the foliage. We dug ponds and stocked them with fish. It was called Hidden Valley Ranch before we owned it. Now it's practically invisible. From the tops of the surrounding hills, you can barely make out the structures and roads below. It's just a mass of green, wooded and lush, with a symphony of birdsong in the air and the buzz of cicadas in summer. So many birds make their home here, 68 different species the Audubon Society estimates, from hummingbirds darting around the mimosas to a pair of black hawks of protected species that return each spring to a nest in a sycamore. They teach their fledgling to fly and hunt, taking advantage of the fish in the creek and the trust that has come to exist between them and us before flying back to Mexico for the winter. Several years ago, we bought land on the other side of the creek, the ghost ranch, as we call it, from the heirs of the self-sufficient old couple who had been the last to ranch here. We're turning it into a wildlife sanctuary to attract even more birds, planting only what is native to the area, cactus and desert willow. When we're finished, the Audubon Society will designate it a special birding area and the thought of that pleases me very much. There are Indian caves in the hills and waterfalls past the creek pens and all kinds of wildlife. Deer, javelina, coyote, fox and skunk, and rattlesnakes. We had a cougar one summer, but they're transient animals and he moved on after he had culled the deer population. We spent all the time we could here. We celebrated holidays and birthdays. We swam in the creek, fished the ponds, hiked the hills and barbecued. The place always teemed with kids, our own and the Harpers and their friends. Until the mid-2000s, when I started spending the 4th of July with the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, we always celebrated the holiday here with dozens of friends we invited for all manners of recreation, 
wiffle ball games, forced marches up the hills to an Indian cave, swimming at the falls, lively dinners along the bank of the creek. We came here after elections to celebrate victories and for consolation after losses. The prescription for both included grilled ribs and a slowly sipped vodka on ice. The McCain Institute convenes a weekend forum every spring at a resort in Sedona, attended by prominent figures in government, business, education, and the military. Foreign and defense ministers and even a few heads of government have come. We host a dinner on Saturday night for the attendees. It's especially beautiful here in the spring, and the property has made such an impression on our guests, the word of Hidden Valley's charms has spread worldwide. Carlos Slim, the billionaire from Mexico City, one of the world's wealthiest men, told me he thought it was one of the nicest places he had ever been. I receive regular solicitations from senior officials of foreign governments. I hear you have a beautiful place near Sedona. I'd love to see it someday. Yes, I loved it when I first saw it and had a vision of what it might become. And now we're nearly there, and I love it all the more. I lived so much of my life on the move, compensated in other ways for the hometown I was denied. I had no connection to one place, no safe harbor where I could rest carelessly. Landscapes and communities pass too quickly to form lasting attachments of shared history that calm you when old age finally confounds your restlessness. I was almost 45 when I moved to Arizona. In the nearly four decades that have passed since, Arizona has enchanted and claimed me. Near the end of his life, Barry Goldwater, a great outdoorsman, tried to describe his affection for the state. Arizona is 113,400 square miles of heaven that God cut out. Then he paused to choke back tears before managing to add, I love it so much. I've experienced every scene of spectacular natural beauty this magnificent state possesses. I've hiked Canyon de Chez and the Grand Canyon rim to rim. I've rafted down the Colorado and houseboated on Lake Powell. I've walked the trails in Saguaro National Park, been struck mute by the landscape of Monument Valley, and spent countless hours happily following hidden paths in wilderness areas. I've driven through the desert in the spring after a wet winter and gasped at the profusion of color, the mesmerizing beauty of desert wildflowers and sudden bloom. I love it so much, and I'm so grateful for the privilege of representing the state and its people in the United States Senate. I've been to just about every community that Arizonans carved from the wilderness and made thrive, places that never stopped growing and places that were abandoned to history when opportunities were exhausted, places that rose and declined were reimagined and made to prosper again by the hard-working, self-starting dreamers Arizona attracts in such great numbers. I've been astonished by the resourcefulness of generations of Arizonans in Yuma and Page, Jerome, Kingman, Bisbee, and Flagstaff, who struggled, achieved, lost, and struggled again to build from their freedom and opportunities strong, prospering, decent communities in the challenging and beautiful place that had won their hearts. We will change as all places do. More people will come, as I once came, to make a new home or find the only home they ever really have in towns and cities and rural communities that will be better for their presence. Some will come from other states and some will come from other countries. They will face the challenges of their time and place. They'll suffer setbacks and they will stick with it and prevail. And years from now, their stories, character, and accomplishments will inspire other lucky newcomers, as I was once inspired, who came to live in beauty and make the most of their lives. I won't see it, but I wish I could. I don't know how much longer I'll be here. Maybe I'll have another five years. Maybe with the advances on oncology, they'll find new treatments for my cancer that will extend my life. Maybe I'll be gone before you hear this. My predicament is, well, rather unpredictable. But I'm prepared for either contingency, or at least I'm getting prepared. I have some things I'd like to take care of first, some work that needs finishing, and some people I need to see. And I want to talk to my fellow Americans a little more, if I may. My fellow Americans, 
No association ever mattered more to me. We're not always right. We're impetuous and impatient and rush into things without knowing what we're really doing. We argue over little differences endlessly and exaggerate them into lasting breaches. We can be selfish and quick sometimes to shift the blame for our mistakes to others, but our country tis of thee. What great good we've done in the world, so much more good than harm. We served ourselves, of course, but we helped make others free, safe, and prosperous because we weren't threatened by other people's liberty and success. We need each other. We need friends in the world, and they need us. The bell tolls for us, my friends. Humanity counts on us, and we ought to take measured pride in that. We have not been an island. We were involved in mankind. Before I leave, I'd like to see our politics begin to return to the purposes and practices that distinguish our history from the history of other nations. I'd like to see us recover our sense that we are more alike than different. We're citizens of a republic made of shared ideals, forged in a new world to replace the tribal enmities that tormented the old one. Even in times of political turmoil such as these, we share that awesome heritage and the responsibility to embrace it. Whether we think each other right or wrong in our views on the issues of the day, we owe each other our respect, as long as our character merits respect, and as long as we share for all of our differences, for all the rancorous debates that enliven and sometimes demean our politics, a mutual devotion to the ideals our nation was conceived to uphold, that all are created equal, and liberty and equal justice are the natural rights of all. Those rights inhabit the human heart, and from there, though they may be assailed, they can never be wrenched. I want to urge Americans for as long as I can to remember that this shared devotion to human rights is our truest heritage and our most important loyalty. Then I'd like to go back to our valley and see the creek run after the rain and hear the cottonwoods whisper in the wind. I want to smell the rose-scented breeze and feel the sun on my shoulders. I want to watch the hawks hunt from the sycamore and then take my leave bound for a place near my old friend Chuck Larson in the cemetery on the Severn, back where it began. The world is a fine place and worth the fighting for, and I hate very much to leave it, spoke my hero Robert Jordan and for whom the bell tolls. And I do too. I hate to leave it, but I don't have a complaint, not one. It's been quite a ride. I've known great passions, seen amazing wonders, fought in a war, and helped make a peace. I've lived very well, and I've been deprived of all comforts. I've been as lonely as a person can be, and I've enjoyed the company of heroes. I've suffered the deepest despair and experienced the highest exultation. I made a small place for myself in the story of America and the history of my times. I leave behind a loving wife who is devoted to protecting the world's most vulnerable and seven great kids who grew up to be fine men and women. I wish I had spent more time in their company, but I know they will go on to make their time count and be of useful service to the beliefs we share and to their fellow human beings. Their love for me and mine for them is the last strength I have. What an ingrate I would be to curse the fate that concludes the blessed life I've led. I prefer to give thanks for those blessings and my love to the people who blessed me with theirs. The bell tolls for me. I knew it would, so I tried as best I could to stay a part of the main. I hope those who mourn my passing, and even those who don't, will celebrate, as I celebrate a happy life lived in imperfect service to a country made of ideals whose continued success is the hope of the world. And I wish all of you great adventures good company, and lives as lucky as mine.